to me, Little Kitchen Academy is like it's a movement. It's an honest to goodness, groundbreaking, from the ground up movement of taking a different approach to empowering kids. And to me, Little Kitchen Academy is about telling kids what they can do. And not only does it tell them what they can do, but it gives them a tangible result, you know, an hour or two later, which is this is what you did. So not only can you do it, but you could do it. And it tastes great and it looks fabulous and you can share it together. And that's a really beautiful thing. And it doesn't happen very often in life. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. If you've ever had a really good idea, and chances are you have, you've probably shared it with people who are close to you, various friends, members of your family, people you really trust. Now, some of them might have asked a few questions, but either way, they likely offered their encouragement. That's what friends and family do. They see something that invigorates you, and they want to support your happiness. But hopefully you've also experienced that kind of endorsement from someone you're not particularly close to, perhaps someone you admire or respect. Those are the kinds of moments that can empower you to pursue your dreams. Yuri Fulmer has lived it, so he truly understands how life-changing an infusion of self-belief can be. Yuri's achieved business success many times over, climbing from the ground floor all the way to the penthouse. He currently holds numerous roles in a variety of organizations, not the least of which are founder and chairman of Fulmer & Company, chancellor of Capilano University, and advisory board member at Little Kitchen Academy. Now, while Yuri has the means to dine at the finest restaurants on the planet, our conversation begins where many a great adventure has made a pit stop, the drive-through. You and I have a number of things in common, one of them being that we both worked at fast food restaurants when we were growing up. Your story, however, is far more interesting than mine, so let's start there. What was your gateway into the food industry, Yuri? Oh, completely random. And, and while we both started by making burgers, I'm still doing it. So uh, you managed to escape. I didn't. <laughs> so I was at university in Vancouver doing the political economy of the Soviet bloc. That proved to not be the best long-term career path of, or study path, as we all know. So I dropped out and needed a job to get me through to sort of the next semester when I was going to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. And at the time in Canada, A&W was running a series of commercials called The Boy and the Bear. So the mascot was a, the, the root bear, so a big stuffed fuzzy thing. And he would go on adventures with a little boy. So he would you know, be skipping down a country lane. He'd be rowing a boat in a lake, like good Canadian adventures between this boy and this bear. And being Australian, there, there's no A&W in Australia. I didn't know what A&W was, right? I was watching these TV commercials and I was trying to deduce what A&W was. So I thought it was either maybe like a logging company, you know, who was trying to get some goodwill because all these adventures were in the outdoors, right? And in the forest and around a lake. Or I thought maybe it's a pharmaceutical company, right? Like trying to create that natural, we're all feeling good together. So one of the jobs I applied for was what they called a neighborhood marketing coordinator at A&W. So I thought, okay, it's either a forestry company or a pharmaceutical company. Proved to be a fast food company. Hmm. 
And my glamorous neighborhood marketing coordinator job actually meant escorting the A&W root beer on appearances through shopping centers and helping the kid that was inside the costume get his sweaty socks and sweaty shirt on and off after he got out of this costume, which when you lift the head off the costume, the smell just like comes out of like 17 year old kid inside the costume. Like, like, and then you sort of like everything the kid's wearing, you could literally wring the sweat out of it. So that was the beginning of my glamorous career. Sounds glamorous by the way you describe it. And I will say as a kid, I too loved A&W. I can remember having a little stuffed root beer at my home and we always wanted to go there for the frosty mugs and the root beer. What was your next step in your journey through fast food? Did you move into the restaurant at some point? Yeah, usually I have one of those. I was, that's what I was looking for. I usually have one of those stuffed root beers on my desk, but I think my two and a half year old was in here a few weeks ago and I think he might've either moved it or stolen it. But yeah, no, I went into the restaurant, started as a drive through guy. You know, hi, welcome to A&W. My name is Yuri. What can I get for you today? And just sort of worked my way up. Like I, I liked working. You know, work is kind of a bit of a meritocracy, right? Like if you sweep faster than the next kid, you're the sweeping supervisor. And, you know, like if you sort of are fairly efficient in sort of sending people home a bit early, you know, you're the assistant manager of sweeping and all of that. So, you know, I, I enjoyed it. A&W was good to me. You know, they gave me all sorts of opportunities. I, you know, some young guy with a big ego and a big attitude should never have been given. So I feel blessed by that. And then a few years later, uh, the company at the time was owned by Unilever. Management bought the company away from Unilever. And at the time, the company owned about a third of the restaurants in Canada. The rest were franchises. And they decided to sell the corporate location. So it, I would have been out of a job. You know, and no harm, no foul. But, you know, I'd always sort of was looking for a management career. So I thought, you know, one day if I worked hard enough, I'd be the vice president of sweeping or something like that and would work towards that. And then my boss at the time came and said, well, why wouldn't you look at trying to buy a restaurant? And I said, well, I, like I've never thought of being an entrepreneur. Or, that had never crossed my radar, right? Like I, I guess I appreciated people owned businesses. Like my dad owned a little retail shop when I was growing up. But, you know, I'd never sort of put that on my career path. And my boss said, look, why wouldn't you? You know, most people go into business doing something they don't know very much about. He said, you know, we've spent four years training you how to do this. Why wouldn't you want to own a business that you actually know how to run on day one? And it was great advice. Bless his heart. He's still a friend here 25 years later. I appreciated that push in life. And that became a food court in New Westminster. And there were eight employees and me. And we wore a lot of polyester. And, you know, we made teen burgers all day. And we smelt like a teen burger by the end of the day. And then it became another location and another and another, and you know the rest's kind of history. Well, and I do want to get into that history, but I want to ask before we go there, you mentioned the teen burger. Is that your favorite A&W burger or is it a different burger? No, I think it has to be, right? I, I don't think you're allowed to have a different favorite. See, when I was growing up, I liked the matzo burger the best, but I think I would probably agree with you at this point that the teen burger has overtaken that in my burger rankings at A&W. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a bit of a closet matzo burger fan as well. So let's take that next step. You turn one franchise into multiple. Please explain how you turned that first opportunity into an incredible amount of business success, which by the age of 30, and you started in A&W in your early 20s, by the age of 30, you had a business portfolio worth more than $60 million. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was a young guy, right? So you don't know what you don't know, and you've got nothing to lose. So bless my mom's heart, my mom lent me some of the money to buy the first location, and she was my first business partner. And then, you know, thanks to the bank and, you know, lending at the time was pretty liberal. You know, like you could raise money pretty easily. So we just bought another one and built another one and they were all pretty successful. And, you know, then the opportunity came to buy the Pizza Huts in Alberta, 
Same story. You know, Yum, who was the franchisor, owned a ton of corporate locations. They decided to sell them. So we bought most of Southern Alberta, so all of Calgary and sort of everything south of Edmonton. And then there was a small steakhouse chain that came available basically almost in, in insolvency. I uh, had been 120 locations in Western Canada at one point. I was down to three or four and sort of in the middle of a rebrand. It was Mr. Mike's. So we bought that and rebranded it and repositioned it and grew it back up. So yeah, like uh, it was a lot of long nights and a lot of going to traveling across Western Canada and a lot of nights in small towns in BC and Alberta and some people's business travel is Paris, London and New York and mine was Cranbrook and Fort McMurray and Red Deer and places like that, which was great. I got to see you know, the Western part of this country and get to almost every corner of it. Meet a lot of amazing people in the journey. So yeah, no, I feel blessed. It was a blessed journey. It, it, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of folks on the team working hard and working long hours and pushing to get stuff done, but a blessed journey. Nothing I ever thought I'd be doing in my life. You know, when I was 17, I wanted to be a lawyer. So this is the complete opposite of doing that, but it's been a blessed journey. I feel super privileged to have done the things I've been able to do and to have met the people I've been able to meet and you know, to guess be my own boss. Like, I don't even know how to have a job now. Like, you know, the idea of filling in a vacation request form is like, I, don't, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. You know, an expense report, really? So I, I, I'm unemployed and unemployable now. What I find interesting about your story is that there's a lot of people in their 20s or early in their life that are faced with an opportunity, but that opportunity comes with risk. And there are a lot of people that will say, I don't know if you should go down that road. It's a lot of money to spend, whether you're buying a house, whether you're trying to buy a business, as in your case, a lot of people will tell you no. What was it about you, Yuri, and the people around you that caused you to say yes? Probably sheer stupidity on my part, or at least a lot of naivety with a bit of stupidity. Um, you're right about the no. In all of our lives, we all have the voice of no, right? And most people, when they say no, it's out of the kindness of their heart. You know, they're not trying to stop you from doing something that you want to do. What they're saying is this is outside my risk tolerance. So I wouldn't do that because it's outside the risk tolerance I have or the comfort zone I have. So when you ask me if you should do it, my answer to you is no, because I wouldn't do it. I think entrepreneurship is a, you know, I, I joke it's sort of a bit of stupidity, a bit of naivety. I think that's true though, but it's a bit about being brave. You know, I think most entrepreneurs would tell you at some point they had to be brave. So they had to say yes when everybody said no. They had to do things they believed were right when perhaps that wasn't the conventional wisdom in the moment. And they had to create an opportunity that maybe other people didn't see. So maybe they saw an opportunity that others didn't or saw a window of time to get something done that others didn't. And nothing to lose helps. So, you know, there's a reason a lot of entrepreneurs are young. You don't have much to lose. Worst case, you go back and get a job working for somebody else, right? I mean, that's what you were doing before. You can go back to that and do it afterwards. It's a really good point. And there's a couple of things tied into that. One is, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And for a lot of people with the way they value money, they do worry about losing everything they have, whatever that everything is at the time. There's an ego component to it as well. People don't want to be seen as failing. Is that something that you've never been fearful of, failing or making mistakes along the way? Always. I mean, the challenge with working for yourself is every mistake you make, you pay for. You learn at your own expense. But you, you get past that quickly, right? Like you find that out really early in your day is that you'll learn, you know, through your own failures. There are going to be some. And I think, you know, one of the things I learned early was whenever you make a mistake, there's a price to pay for it somewhere, whether it's a relationship price or a financial price, you know, whatever it is. And the thing is to not shy away from that, right? Like it's there. 
So look for where it is and then go and deal with it. So if it's financial price, you've got to go and pay it. If you've you know damaged a relationship, you've got to go and try and apologize and repair it. So to do that and do that quickly. And I think once you've done it enough, it's almost, you know, you're not worried about it anymore. You know that you'll do the best you can to fix it if you screw up. I think the further you get in your career and, you know, I've got family and kids now and, you know, there are a lot of employees out in the various businesses, you know, who put their trust in us by coming to work every day and putting their paycheck in our hands. So, you know, you feel a bigger responsibility now. And so, you know, I think as you get older, you get a bit more cautious. And as you have a family, you get a bit more cautious. And as you sort of look people in the eye and realize that those people trust me and us to make sure there's a job for them, you know, you want to honor that responsibility. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the people that work for you or that you've employed over the years. I did see a quote that you gave in doing a little research about you. And one of those quotes is, your employees are the key to being successful. Try to measurably improve their lives. We're living at a time right now, Yuri, where people have no issue leaving a job if they're unhappy. How do you and your companies go about keeping your employees happy? What are your principles? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm not a big believer in mission statements and putting value statements on the wall. And, you know, I mean, everybody's values tend to sort of, you know, end in integrity and like, you've got to just live those every day. Putting them on a poster on a wall, I don't know, makes them live anymore in an organization. I'm blessed. So I, I run a family office here. There are no shareholders other than me and a couple of members of the management team. So no outside shareholders. So, you know, I tend to run the business on the values that in my family lives by, which is, you know, to be kind, you know, to help people when they're in need, to stand behind people when they make mistakes, to cheer for people when they, they're successful, and to be straight with people all the time. And sometimes that being straight with people is tough. You know, sometimes you have to tell people this isn't the right place for you, not the right opportunity for you. You know, it's time for you to go somewhere else and take your skills somewhere else. But I think if you do that transparently and kindly and thoughtfully, people see that and want to be part of it. You know, this whole idea that you have employees for life, you know, if this is the right place for somebody for their entire career, that's great. I can't imagine that it is for most people. So I think you have to be okay with the folks that work with you, come to you one day and say, this has been great and thank you. But it's time for me to try something different or experience something else. I think at those moments, you can either sort of say, poor me, or you can say, I'm really happy that you've found something that you think is going to challenge you and use your skills. And I can't wait for you to come back in life and tell me how well that's going for you. You know, one of the blessings of LinkedIn now, right, is, you know, things pop up. I mean, I just had one this morning when I was waiting for somebody to arrive for breakfast. You know, somebody who worked for me 20 years ago you know, it just popped up that they've been promoted to president. This lady worked for me when she was 19, you know, and she's now running a, it's got to be a half billion dollar business. You know, she worked for me for a year or two. So I've only a tiny part of her journey, but her journey's taken her somewhere. And I, you know, I got a bit emotional seeing this pop up on LinkedIn this morning. I'm just thrilled for her. Yeah. So I think if you take that approach, you know, people stay for the right amount of time. I agree with you. And if you lead with the priority of treat people well, that's a great place to err when you're coming down to difficult decisions. And that does keep employees happy, whether it's because they're leaving, because you've given them the professional growth they needed, or whether they're staying and they love the environment. Sometimes that gets out of whack. You run with a lot of business leaders. You've seen a lot of different businesses. Why do you think so many employers overlook that simple, simple thing, treat people well? Yeah, and I don't know if it's the pressures that leaders get from you know other stakeholders in the business, right? Whether it's shareholders clamoring for different returns, or you know they're trying to appease you know one stakeholder over another, or they've just misunderstood the employee base. 
there's sort of a ton of conventional wisdom out there. You know, I keep hearing about Generation X or Generation Y, you know, this generation's lazy or needs to be in yoga class. Like, I've never found any of that stuff to be true. Like, there are lazy 70-year-olds and there are hardworking 70-year-olds. There are lazy 32-year-olds and there are hardworking 32-year-olds. And, you know, most people are pretty hardworking. And most people want to lead a balanced life, whatever balance looks like for them. Everybody's balance is different. But most people want to work hard and do good work and work that they're proud of. Most people want to come to work each day and do better work than they did yesterday and do the best work of their life. And they want to have a family and they want to have friends and they want to have interests and they want to lead their own best life. You know, so it's easy to sort of find reasons why you think people are the way they are. But I think most people are good, hardworking, honorable, ethical people who want to lead a good life and do good work. And I think if you receive people in that way, you win. If you look for reasons why people aren't doing what you think they should be doing, you know, you can find a long list of those reasons. I I don't know that they're all true. I've listened to more people tell me about the last two generations and and why we're all destined for failure. Like I haven't found that. I've found good, hardworking people in their 30s some of whom want to be at yoga class at three o'clock in the afternoon, but they're back online at seven o'clock at night and working till midnight. I agree with you. And I heard somebody mention this the other day, and I thought it was a really good point that the people who complain about millennials are the people who raised the millennials. So I'm not sure where they should be pointing the finger. <laughs> That's really true. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I took a, a workshop a, a few years ago and I, I mean, I'm late forties and I was probably the youngest person in the workshop, but it was about social media. And I remember the presenter was, you know, probably in his 30s. And one of the CEOs in the room was saying, look, what really frustrates me is walking around my office and I see employees on Facebook or I see employees on Amazon during the workday. You know, he says, I don't know what to do about it. I find it very frustrating. You know, they don't even minimize the screen when I walk by. They don't even have the decency to lie to me. So, you know, I thought, well, good thing they don't, right? Like at least they're living their truth. But the instructor said to this guy, well, be honest with me now. When you send an employee an email at eight o'clock at night, that's important. Do you realistically expect a response? Like, don't tell me what the company policy is. Do you as the CEO, when you as CEO send an email to an employee at eight o'clock at night, do you deep down think they should reply to you? And he said, yes. And the instructor said, but you don't think they should take 10 minutes back during the day to do some shopping or to be on Facebook. You don't think that's a fair quid pro quo here. You think that's unfair. They should give you their whole work day without interruption, and they should reply to your emails at night. He said, I think that's off base. And in fairness, this CEO, who like well-known CEO in Vancouver, looked at him and said, you're right. That's off base. I've heard you. There's a lot of places we can go with that about how learning never stops, about what these next generations can bring, because I'm like you, Future generations actually make me quite hopeful. They're more in touch with their feelings. They're much more honest than we were. They're willing to ask questions, I think, where my generation probably wasn't at the time. They didn't question authority. They just did what they were told. And that's a great place to go with Little Kitchen Academy because it is all about children and it is all about the future. I'm wondering, Yuri, how you first became aware of Little Kitchen Academy. You know, in preparing for today, I'm trying to remember how I stumbled across it. And I think it was an introduction from another company we're invested in called Chop Value, who makes the communal tables for Little Kitchen Academy. So I think that was it. And I'm pretty sure that was it. But I remember the first time I met Brian, and I remember thinking, this guy has a vision that's a million miles wide, and it's really compelling, 
right? And I, one of the things I love about Brian is he thinks big. There's lots of zeros on everything he thinks about, and he does it with charm and enthusiasm and courage and a bit of bravery that we talked about earlier. And I'm just excited to hang around him and see what he can do. Then you see what his wife has put together at Little Kitchen Academy. As you hear about that vision, you get to see it with your own eyes. What is it about Little Kitchen Academy that made you want to be involved once you saw what it actually was? Yeah, and this may sound a little quirky and grandiose, but to me, Little Kitchen Academy is like it's a movement. It's an honest-to-goodness, groundbreaking, from-the-ground-up movement of taking a different approach to empowering kids and giving kids something that traditionally we haven't done. You know, whilst we all grew up, or at least most of us did, sort of in the kitchen, we were all told we couldn't, right? No, oh, the pot's hot and the knife is sharp and the stove's hot and back away from the oven and, you know, oh, don't crack the egg because you'll break the yolk. And, you know, it was an environment of don'ts, right? Like, yes, there was food in there, so that's why every kid was there. And maybe you were allowed to lick the spoon. But there was a whole host of don'ts, you know, and there's a beautiful quote, I think it came up on a Little Kitchen Academy you know, email the other day, which was never stop a child doing something that the child believes that he or she can do. You know, it's funny, like I've got little kids, right? I've got a 20 year old, a 10 year old, a two and a half year old and a nine month old. Uh, and my two and a half year old's super into everything, right? He wants to help all the time. And he's got little steps that he brings into the kitchen. So, you know, he says, dad, I'll come and help you. And then he goes and grabs his steps and brings them up so he can come up to the counter and see over the counter. But I thought, you know what? I spent all day telling him what he can't do. And I spend no time telling him what he can do. And to me, Little Kitchen Academy is about telling kids what they can do. And not only does it tell them what they can do, but it gives them a tangible result, you know, an hour or two later, which is this is what you did. So not only can you do it, but you could do it. And it tastes great and it looks fabulous and you can share it together. And that's a really beautiful thing. And it doesn't happen very often in life. And I think it is a movement. And I think the parents and the kids that are part of it, they may not know they're part of a movement, but they're part of a movement. They evangelize for it. They tell each other about it. I mean, there's a reason that there's not a huge marketing budget at LKA because you don't need one because parents tell other parents and kids tell other kids and kids tell other kids' parents. And, you know, that's how movements are created, right? As you don't need to advertise a movement. The people in the movement sell the movement. It's a really good point that you bring up because it doesn't just change the kids. I do think it has an effect on the parents. And that's a good thing when parents rethink what their norms are around their children and they err on the side of leading with the child, isn't it? Totally. I mean, even the fact, you I mean, I know there's some practical reasons why Little Kitchen's vegetarian, but you know, I've got a 10 year old who sort of announced to us that she really didn't like meat. You know, she never really ate meat. I mean, she'll have a bit every now and then and, you know, does the social, takes four bites and pushes it around her plate and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, even as a parent, Little Kitchen gave me permission to talk to her about vegetarianism, right? And, okay, well, if you don't like meat, what are we going to do about that, right? Like, you can't not have protein. So how are we going to work on this together, right? So, you know, it's allowed me to parent differently. It's allowed me to enable my kids to do things differently, to have them part of it. Like, no, my son does not crack eggs perfectly every time at two and a half, and sometimes the yolk breaks. Oh, well, that's my problem, right? I'll solve for that but it's enabled him and I to do stuff together that wouldn't have occurred to me. So I think I'm a better parent because of the things that I've learned. So this is the question that everybody who comes on this podcast gets asked, and I will ask it now. Yuri, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? There's always love in the kitchen. There's always a glass of wine to at dinner time, but that wasn't always true. But there was always love. 
I grew up going to my grandmother's for dinner every Sunday night. And, you know, for the longest time, she cooked on a wood stove. She didn't actually have a gas stove, so it was a wood-burning stove. And the woman could, you know, make a roast dinner with five vegetables and two sauces and gravy and a steamed pudding and custard, you know, on this wood-burning stove, right? I, it was incredible to watch. And, you know, for her, having her family there on a Sunday night was the time she got to see us, the time she got to feed us, and the time we all came together. And so, you know, my earliest memories of, you know, sort of communal eating and communal cooking were that. And there was always love. Cooking wasn't a chore. Like it was a thing you did for the people you loved and you did it with love. And we, you know, my, my wife and I still try and do that, right? We try and cook together when we can. We try and have everybody in the kitchen when we can. And I think the beautiful thing about the modern kitchen is that everybody's in the modern kitchen, right? You know, when I grew up, the kitchen was sort of this little tacky room on the back of the house that you never sat in. Now everybody's building kitchens that you want to be in, right? I think that's beautiful, right? That's where family belongs. That's literally why we called this podcast Meet Me in the Kitchen, because that's where every great gathering ends up. At some point in time, people want to be there and they want to be around each other. And there is love in those gatherings. And as you talk about family, I'm wondering if it was that family influence that informed your need to be so involved with your community and so involved with philanthropy as you have been in your life. Yeah. You know, we've all led pretty blessed lives, right? Like whatever degree of privilege each of us has by global standards, we're in that very top group of people who've led blessed lives and been given blessed lives. You know, we've all made good decisions. We've all done the right thing, but we got an enormous head start gifted to us. And I think, you know, all I've tried to do is help other people not start so far behind and where you can enable people to have maybe not the same opportunities that we've all been given because that's hard to do but to at least be given an opportunity at the opportunity, if that makes sense. And I think we have an obligation to do that. I think those of us who were given a head start have an obligation to help others. Was that something that's been with you since childhood, or was there an experience that turned the light bulb on for you? To be honest, I led a pretty selfish 20s. I can actually remember the pivotal moment. So I was driving to a meeting in Surrey. I was way behind, right? Like I'm sitting on Highway 1. The meeting's already passed. You know, if it was a 3 o'clock meeting, it's already 3.10. And I'm still on the highway and I'm swearing and cursing up a storm and, you know, pounding the steering wheel in my air conditioned, you know, leather interior vehicle. Back then, Bill Good had an afternoon radio show. So that tells you how long ago this was. And the story on the radio was that in Surrey, where I was headed, one third of elementary school children came to school every day, not having had breakfast. And I thought my idea of a bad day is sitting in my $80,000 car being 10 minutes late for a meeting, which I'm late for, by the way, because I left late, right? My fault. I wasn't thinking at the time it was my fault. I was blaming everybody else, but it was my fault. I left late and thinking that's my idea of a bad day. If that's my bad day, I lead a pretty bloody privileged life. And so if a third of kids are coming to school without breakfast for whatever reason, right, whether parents can't afford it, parents you know, don't know enough to provide it or whatever the case may be, how do you expect kids to get ahead and catch up if they started without food. And I started volunteering at the Surrey Food Bank the next week. That was my catalytic moment. That was the shot to the side of the head of give your head a shake. You're a selfish, you know, a-hole and you need to do something. And you have, and you've lived that in a lot of different philanthropic capacities. And you know this because of some of the circles you've been involved in over the years. There are a lot of people who accumulate a great deal of wealth that give money to charitable causes, which is extremely important. Not all of those people, Yuri, are willing to give their time. 
Why is it important to you to be involved personally, not just financially? Yeah. And, you know, I think people have to do what they can do, right? So at different stages of your life, you have time. At different stages of your life, hopefully you have a bit of money. And sometimes you have both at once. And I was blessed to have a bit of both at once. My little kids came late in my life. So, you know, I, in my 30s, I had some time and I was fortunate to have some money early. So I had both. So I had both to give. If people only have one, they, they've got to give what they have, right? So if they have a bit of time, they can volunteer. And if they have a bit of money and no time, they should give the money. You know, I'd say that there's been a bit of selfishness to my volunteerism. And it's this. When people show up to volunteer, they show up as the best of themselves. Most people, when they come to volunteer, they're happy. They want to be there. They come in service. They come thoughtfully. They come conscientiously. They come with a spirit of caring and a spirit of love. Like that is them being the best of themselves. So selfishly, you get to volunteer with people who are being the best of themselves. Ordinarily in life, you get people on good days and bad days, and they're not feeling well, and something went wrong. And you know, like we all have that. But when you volunteer, you one, you're the best of yourself, I think, and you're surrounded by people who are the best of themselves. Being in that state of mind with like-minded people. And your giving of yourself is incredibly rewarding. Like I find I'm in my best mental space when I do that. And I like to be part of the active conversation around how do we level the playing field for as many people as we can. Like I think giving money, you trust others to do that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And we need people who'll do that. But I think we also need people to engage in it and to have a conversation about it and work towards it and be strategic about it and be thoughtful about it. I think it's all of those things. But I would say selfishly that my happiest times have been volunteering. Well, and I'm wondering as well, as people achieve a certain degree of success, it's really easy to lose touch with the guy who was with the mascot on the street, wringing out sweaty clothes, or the guy who was working at the fast food restaurant that didn't have anything. Has it also kept you very grounded along the way as well and in touch with what's actually happening in the world? Yeah, I think so too. You know, we have a social enterprise called Goodly. So we repurpose produce that would otherwise hit the landfill. And the folks who work at Goodly are people who would have multiple barriers to traditional employment. So whether it was an incarceration or they're single parents or, you know, they're homeless, it's multiple barriers. So not a single barrier, but multiple barriers. It was just one of my colleagues just said this morning that her best day working here was the day we all went and volunteered there. And we cut vegetables together because the employee base is entirely indigenous. And, you know, as I said, multiple barriers to employment. And they're the warmest, kindest, most inclusive group. The guys on the floor are all guys. And we had a fun morning, all of us working together, everybody from very different backgrounds. You know, one of the fellows was in the residential school system himself and was telling us stories of the residential school system. The others were all children of residential school survivors. And we all appreciate intellectually the damage that residential schools did. But to stand cutting carrots and, you know, plucking the, you know, celery with somebody who lived through residential schools and the impact that that had on him and him telling that story gives you a very different appreciation. You know, you do need to to understand it intellectually, but to have somebody tell you their own story takes it to a different point of awareness for you. So yes is the very long answer to your question. I think you do stay grounded by being with people from many different backgrounds who may not share your privilege. And you bring up a really important topic, the reckoning that we're going through in this country with truth and reconciliation. And I think you make a really good point, Yuri. There have been too many people for too long who want to stand up and say, I have the answer. We just need to listen. Do we not? I think we need to listen and act. I think we just need to not act unilaterally. So I think a lot of very well-meaning people and thoughtful people have tried to just to say, I've got a solution 
whether it's I've got the money for a solution or I've got legislation for a solution or whatever it is, and I've tried to run to solution. You know, we're in this place because people ran to solution and it was the wrong solution. Let's not do that again. So, uh, you know, I think that adage of nothing about us without us, how can we as Canadians, all of us as Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, settler Canadians, how do we work together to build a better country that we all want to live in? And I think we do that thoughtfully and intentionally, right? We do that together. Nobody's imposing it on anybody else. But, you know, the first half of truth and reconciliation is truth. You have to understand people's truth, right? And that, to your well-said point, involves listening. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And as you've mentioned a number of times during the course of this interview, you have a young family. What are the most critical values that you would hope to pass on to your children as they make their way forward? You know, I, to me, it leads with kindness. How can we all be kinder? You know, and the Dalai Lama, you know, led teachings on this. And it doesn't matter what faith you follow. I mean, almost every faith talks about being kind. I think there's a reason for that. When things have gone wrong in the world, it's been a lack of kindness and a lack of empathy. And whether we look at you know the state of the political divide in the US, whatever it is we look at, it's when people stop being kind to each other. So I think first and foremost for me with my kids is how do you lead kind lives? You know, The thing I want them to understand is that the privilege that they were born with, that's not theirs. Right? They didn't earn that. That was the lottery that they won before they were born. That's something that they can either use for good or it's something they can use for self, whatever selfish thing they want to do with it. And how do you use that for good? The worst thing you can do with the privilege you're born with is to squander it. That's not useful. So how do you use it to make other people's lives better? Which sort of circles back to kindness. But really it's that, how do you be a kinder person? That's really well said. I actually watched a movie with my family recently and one of the quotes in the movie, the movie began with this was, when you have a choice, whether you can be right or whether you can be kind, choose kindness every single time. And it's a good way to live. I remember I was in Bali many years ago and we had a tour guide on the uh, with us. And you know, in those sort of long car rides between places you see, you're trying to make conversation with your tour guide. And I said, you know, well, tell me what the political system is. And he said, well, like what level? Do you want the national or do you want the sort of village municipal? I said, well, let's start at the village municipal and work our way up. And he said, well, at the village level, there's a chief. And he said, no council, just a chief. And I said, well, how, do, how does the chief get elected? He said, well, you're not going to really understand this. And I said, well, try me. We've got a car ride. Like, worst case, I don't. And he said, well, we pick the nicest person in the village. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, this is why you're not going to understand. I said, okay, let me take off my judgy coat and my democracy is the only way. Okay, fair enough. Nicest person in the village. How do you select the nicest person in the village? And he said, well, amongst your friends, who's the nicest of your friends? can you pick somebody who's the nicest of your friends? I said, actually, I can. Like, I can think of the nicest of my friends. He said, that would be the chief. That's how we do it. And I thought, that is beautiful. Right? If we could all pick the nicest person we know to be in charge, the world would be a better place. You're right. You are at a point in your career where you do get a chance to pick and choose with what you're involved with. So I'm wondering, when you join an organization or a company in any capacity, whatever that is, what is it that you need to see that makes you, Yuri Fulmer, say, yes, this is worth my time. This is where I want to spend some time. So first and foremost, it's about the people, right? Who's leading the vision? Who's leading the strategy? And what are we trying to achieve together? You know, not that my values are the right values, but there has to be a values alignment. 
I have to believe that I can add something and that I'm in an environment where you know my values are honored and I can honor the values of folks around me. And again, that doesn't make me right. It just means that we're aligned. So first and foremost, the people and the people in leadership. People in leadership get to pick the rest of the people. It's just the way of the world. You know, they've got to have a strategic intent that I find both interesting and noble. And I don't mean noble in a grand sense, but it can't be a hurtful strategy, right? It can't be to undermine anything. It can't be to do harm. It doesn't necessarily have to be to do excess amounts of good, but it can't be to do harm. And then I think, you know, you go into the more minutiae, right? Like if it's a business, you know, is there a customer base for the business? Is there a way to make money doing this? You know, how do you scale it? All of that sort of thing. If it's a, you know, a social enterprise, how is it going to lever what it does to do more good for more people? Is it the most economical way to do good, right? So can we do as much good as possible with the resources that we have? But it really starts with the people. The people piece is a gate. If the leadership is not mission aligned and values aligned, the rest doesn't matter. That's a nice tie-in back to Little Kitchen Academy because that's something Felicity has always said about scaling Little Kitchen Academy is it is always dependent on the partners we select and the staff that they choose because without that, we're not going to be able to deliver the message and impact these children the way we want to. I know you're a believer in education. You detailed how you chose university early in your life, but you found a different path to where you are today. One of your current positions, as I mentioned, is the chancellor at Capilano University. Why was it important to you to accept that position? So one of the people in leadership in the organization I love and have a lot of time for. And my Capilano story is this. So when I actually spoke at one of their graduation ceremonies a long time ago, and I remember sitting there on stage looking out in the audience of the people who were graduating and the people who came with them to watch them graduate. So whether it was family or friends. And I remember thinking most of these people didn't think they'd be here. So this wasn't a right for these folks. This is a privilege. Coming to university and getting a university education is a privilege. And to something you said very early in this chat, this will change their life. And it was everybody. It wasn't just 21-year-olds graduating with a credential. It was oftentimes mum graduating with a credential. And maybe mum was you know, a caregiver in whatever country she came from and now was recertified. And this allows the family to have a better income and better self-esteem in the family, et cetera. But for everybody who walked across that stage, I remember thinking, you weren't sure you'd be here. And it's a moment for real celebration. And you could see the pride in people's faces. And again, it wasn't always parental pride for their kids. It was often kids proud of their mom up on stage. And I thought, this is something I want to be part of. And again, no, I went to UBC and SFU, and this is no slight against those wonderful universities. But you watch a graduation ceremony at UBC, and everybody thinks they had a right to be there. At Capilano, they don't. And I think that's really beautiful. And I think it does change people's lives. Whether the credential itself changes people's lives or just the experience of university and that broader education and, and wider experience, I think it's life-changing for people. And I say that as the least educated university chancellor in the country, I'm sure. Well, the message has been on point and it's been the thread that has run throughout our conversation, impacting people's lives in a positive manner. Yuri, thank you very much for this. It was a pleasure talking to you today, meeting you today. And I wish you all the best moving forward in impacting people's lives in a positive manner. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? <laughs>